Support for WERU comes from Sundog Solar Store, celebrating their grand opening Saturday, March 13th from noon to 4, featuring food, music, door prizes, and a workshop on solar hot water systems for your home, located on Main Street in Searsport. More information at 548-1100 or www.sundogsolarstore.com. On the wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, this is Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill. Stay tuned for Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. What do you think about crime and punishment? No, not the novel, but how it's playing out in our society. The U.S. had 2.3 million people in prison or in jail in 2008, the highest incarceration rate in the world. It makes you wonder if there isn't a better way. And this morning, we're going to talk about some better ways to deal with crime and punishment and maybe use the, the term restorative justice as a, as, a, as a model of how we might deal with some of these issues. And I'm glad to have some folks in the studio who can help us with our question, and we'll talk with others by phone. I wanted to welcome Margaret Michalicek of the Restorative Justice Project in the Midcoast. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. We also have uh, Henry Dyer, um, who is a participant in a new community reentry program, and Peter McLaughlin, also a participant in that program. Welcome both of you. Good morning. Marika, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, give us some sense of, of how we got here. What's, how did we get to this place where um, crime and punishment is really putting people in prison or in jail, and, and, and then what happens then? Um, I, I think it's been over the years. I think it's kind of been an ethic that we've kind of followed in society where we've continually removed those individuals who do wrongdoing in, in the community and had this ideal that by removing them community and, and incarcerating them, that somehow we were going to get changes in behavior that we were hoping that they would come out of a facility such as that um, and be able to better uh, function within, in the community. But in reality, what happens is that we've disconnected them so much from community and from uh, any type of support systems that they might have that those behavioral changes that we're hoping for through punishment were not, are not occurring. And it 
creates this um, movement of moving the individual further and further from any type of quote-unquote rehabilitation that incarceration is supposed to bring about. And in most instances, and I think a lot of folks that have spent time incarcerated in prisons and jails will say that they came out with more techniques and, and, and worse attitude than they did when they went in. Mm. So mm. I think it's been quite a process. Um, there was a point, you know, earlier, you know, in the ni- 1900s and stuff where um, we just kept turning to the experts, to the justice, to um, uh, the law enforcement to kind of handle our community conflicts. And that has grown and grown more to be this really system that is really removed from the wrongdoing and the harm that happens when an individual commits a crime in the community. We think way back in time, um, <clears throat> tribal people probably had a different way of dealing with that. They they dealt with the, the, the crime and the rehabilitation of a person within the community. We began to put people in debtors' prisons and that sort of thing back in the Middle Ages. Um, so we've really, we've really kind of hardened that system, haven't we? We sure have. Um, and I think that's where restorative justice uh, comes in. You talk about the circle process and um, indigenous tribes and how communities, when they, they functioned on their own, had their own set of rules and expectations and values for the culture of their tribe. Um, restorative justice is very much based in that philosophy. Um, and the current model of what people are calling restorative justice and restorative practices does come out of the Maori tribes of New Zealand, um, the Aboriginal tribes of Canada, um, Pacific Northwest tribes, um, who really are going back to their cultural roots and looking at how do we deal with wrongdoing. And what they know is that their young people and, and, and their males from their, their tribes are being removed from their communities. And so there's been a major movement to keep their children in their community to deal with those wrongdoings um, with their elders and recreating what used to be um, their, their, their culture around addressing that wrongdoing. Mm. Well, tell us a little bit about the, your, your kind of path. Um, you were dealing with um, uh, incarcerated youth at one point in your work. You've kind of migrated to um, the mid-coast of, of Maine, and, and how did that all work? <laughs> Um, it was a long journey. Um, I, I started working in a, a, a facility for juvenile offenders who were uh, sexual offenders and arsonists, and um, they were also individuals who were uh, would cut and uh, do um, self-mutilation types of things. And I just watched, and I watched these young men coming in, 12 to 17 years old, and I watched how the system responded to their needs and the fact that so many of them came in with so many needs and all we were doing was warehousing these young men and then sending them out. And it got to the point where the staff were making bets on how long the kids were going to stay out and how long would it be before we saw them back. And I realized at that point that there had to be a different way and that I, could, I, I just couldn't function in that setting anymore. And uh, so I left that facility and moved to the East Coast and um, was became involved with uh, Girl Scouting and involved with the um, MCI Framingham, which is a women's state prison down in Massachusetts, and did a program with the women there to reconnect them with their children, Um, because many of them, Massachusetts at the time, had a mandatory uh, three strikes, you're out, drug law, and so a lot of women were landing in prison for 10-year sentences for being present, for taking a phone call, for some for dealing, and, and rightfully so, 
uh, serving time, but there were so many that left behind families and young children who, by the time these women were going to be out of jail, it was going to be 12, 14 years old that these girls were going to be. So we created this program just to try to keep some connection, some balance in these uh, young girls' lives. And when we look at the statistics and we look at uh, families who have members that are, are incarcerated for long periods of time, there's a 70% chance that their children are also going to end up being in jail and incarcerated and, and being part of the correctional system. So I really believe that we could have an impact to, by maintaining connection and keeping some normalcy to their relationships, um, that we could help these young girls not take that path and end up um, incarcerated as their mothers were. Um, and then from that, we also started working with one of the courts in uh, West Roxbury and looking at a diversion for female juvenile offenders, most of them middle school students who were um, smoking pot, truancy, um, some real basic things, but also girls in really great need of having some role models and some mentors and some um, uh, caring adults who could really work with them and work with their families to uh, maintain some connection to school and their education. Um, and leaving there, then coming to Maine for uh, what I thought was going to be a year, um, and finding out that there was a movement in the Midcoast area to look at restorative justice and what could we bring and what was happening. Um, at the time, there was a movement through the Department of Corrections um, that had created what's called the community resolution teams to work with juvenile offenders. Um, it was a diversion from the courts and using a process called conferencing, um, which is very much uh, part of restorative justice and based on the philosophy that when a wrongdoing happens, it's a violation against a relationship and the connectedness within the community. The goal of the conferencing then is to bring together the victim and the offender, members of the community, the family, and have a conversation about what's happened. What were you thinking at the time? What have you thought about since? Who's been impacted by what you've done? And, and the final piece being that um, coming up with an agreement. So what do you need to do to make this right? What do you need to do to repair this relationship and be able to move forward? And it's very much based in community. Um, it's grassroots. It requires um, that the community retake some of the ownership of wrongdoing when it happens in the community rather than deferring it to the courts or to law enforcement. It's like, we need to own this. Because mm -hmm. these folks that we're sending away and say don't belong, they're, no, they're not good neighbors, they're not this, are coming back to our community. And, uh, you know, the average jail sentence is less than 30 days. So, you know, they might disappear for two weeks, but they're coming back. Mm -hmm. What kind of change in behavior are we really going to see? So the conferencing piece was really a strong piece to really look at. How do we maneuver this? How do we um, get some change in behavior? And the big piece that really comes out is that impact. Who's been impacted by what you've done so that we can work on changing behavior and, and having folks feel connected to community? So, uh, so that's the piece that we built on. And mm -hmm. that was happening. Um, the state of Maine in, uh, legislated that in in 1998 um, as a process and had some things going. And so we were able to pick up on it um, when we started the project in uh, 2005. Mm. And so, how is how is restorative justice in the mid coast organized? How how do you how is your how are you structured and and what's the geographic range? Just to give listeners a chance to kind of see the picture. Uh, when we originally started, we were uh, focused in Waldo County. Um, Sheriff Scott Story uh, at the time was having a, kind of a crisis with jail overcrowding. 
Um, we had started with the conferencing, and we're working with the juvenile uh, community corrections officers with the juvenile program. Um, the jail overcrowding came up, and the uh, referendum in Waldo County had just been uh, voted down to build a new jail, which would have been a 72-bed facility. Um, the current facility in Waldo County is a 32-bed and um, it was built in the 70s, so it's kind of antiquated and could really use an uplift. And he agreed that possibly introducing a mentoring program to assist individuals coming out of the county jail could help keep them out of jail for longer periods of time. And so we introduced a mentoring program and uh, worked with individuals around things, uh, around housing, employment, um, if people needed had conditions with the court or with probation around getting addiction counseling or rehab, we were able to give them a support system that was above and beyond going back to their families and, and their normal support system. And it also gave more of an objective viewpoint mm -hmm. so that when there was conflict or there was you know indecision happening or that was that hesitancy to go back toward to old patterns, that there was this person sitting out here on the side that could say, mm, maybe you don't really want to do that. You know, when you were in jail, you talked about this is what you really wanted, um, this is what you really valued, and this could kind of take you back and have you coming back into being incarcerated. Well, let's hear from uh, both Henry and Peter a little bit about their stories, and then we can kind of bring them into the conversation. Um, Henry, start with you. Um, how did you get started in, in, in this? What was your story? Well, um, in early of uh, 2009, um, I committed a crime, and I was convicted in June. Um, prior to my conviction, I was um, actually in contact with Margaret, who set me up uh, with a couple of mentors um, through the program. Um, they helped me through the, the justice process. Um, like Margaret said, we tried to set up a, a conference, um, which unfortunately didn't happen. Um, but uh, my mentors helped me through the process, um, and I was convicted of two felonies. Um, I spent 10 days in incarceration, then I was released on home release for the remainder of my 30 days. Um, and uh, after my home release was, was finalized, I had a year of probation. Um, and I was unemployed until uh, probably about November of uh, 2009 um, or early December. Then I was employed uh, by a restaurant, um, and I've been there since. And I was just recently promoted mm. um, from being just a crew member to an assistant manager, um, which was huge based on my conviction. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I kind of got started with restorative justice. Um, the whole program um, has been an excellent program, and... Uh, uh, for me, um, and uh, I'm a huge advocate for, for mm -hmm. the program. Uh, it's definitely changed my life and turned my life around and has definitely given me a second chance. Mm -hmm. um, and sitting in, in a cell for, for 10 days, uh, for my experience, didn't help me out a bit. Um, all it did was, you know, let me uh, think about what I did and, and uh, it gave me no opportunity to repair the harm that I did do. Uh, and restorative justice gave me that opportunity to to go back and, and make right of my wrongs. Mm. And what's the uh, what's the relationship? You've got two mentors? Yes. Tell, tell us a little bit about that relationship. Um, my mentors are, are excellent. Um, it actually has gotten to a point where I don't really think of them as my mentors. They're, sure. they're really good buddies of mine. Right. Um, one of them, uh, he's a pastor. Um, we've done we've gone to New York City together um, to do some work down there. My other mentor, um, it, it's normal if I call him three four times a week. <laughs> I'm always in contact, um, and they're they're really great people, and they've been through 
uh, the whole process with me, um, all the way from, from court to being in the jail system. Um, they've made visits um, uh, when I was incarcerated, which really helped me stay focused and stay on the path that I needed to and, and stay positive. And, um, and uh, they've, they've been excellent. Mm. I'll, I'll turn to Peter at this point, but think about um, perhaps some things that you've seen in the jail system, the court system that, you know, people didn't choose to get involved in, in the reentry program, and, and what's the difference? So I'll ask you that in a little bit. Absolutely. But, but uh, um, Henry, uh, excuse me, P- uh, Peter McLaughlin, tell us a little bit about your story. Um, uh, prior to, to uh, the 2000, I was uh, a chef at a prominent restaurant. Um, I had a, a wife and two children, a house, uh, well-respected in the community, and in the year 2000, I got in a, in a bad snowmobile accident, and um, I ended up being prescribed prescription drugs for the pain, and um, it, I got addicted to the drugs, and it went past the drugs that I started looking for drugs elsewhere, and and it led to a uh, a time that I took somebody out of state to get something to get drugs so that I could take drugs, mm. um, and. Um, it boiled down to the federal government indicted me for that. I ended up spending three years in federal prison. Um, and on release of that, um, I got arrested by the state for giving somebody prescription drugs because I, I didn't deal with the problem and still had the same problem when I got out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did three years in the state for that. Um, and I got out again with no probation, and I got an OUI and went to Waldo County. Um, and in Waldo County, um, there was a VOA system there um, where I could get out into a home confinement, and, and restorative justice was was mentioned to me as a, as a way um, to find my way back to the community. And uh, I took the option with the VOA. VOA stands for. Do you remember what? Volunteers of America. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and I got a uh, my mentors. I had two of them, and one of them was. Uh, who happened to be my uh, grade school principal, mm. and um, and and with that and uh, some other things, um, you know, some other programs, and and I found my way back to the community, and I found my footing again, and um, and and the restorative justice was was just a fantastic program to have someone to talk to. And it sounded like, <laughs> the, the, to me, in you're telling the story. You had federal experience, you had state experience, but you had to come back to Waldo County <laughs> to get the kind of support that you would need to make a good reentry into the community. Yes, yes, it was. And, you know, I was lucky to have uh, a family that was supportive throughout the whole thing and always there for mm-hmm. me. But mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, you need something beside your family to tell you that you're still a good person and right. still have potential. Right. And, um, you know, sometimes you can't talk to your family about things you can talk to other people. Sure. So it sounded like the, the mentor role, the, the kind of supportive community role, was key to having you um, make a good reentry. It was. You know, it was, it was support again from the community, someone in the community saying, you know, okay, you know, you're still a valued person, and, and that, that helps. It helps a lot. So. Right, right. And, Henry, back to you. You probably saw some of your fellow um, uh, prisoners, basically, yes. who didn't choose this path. And where are they now? Are they in and out of, of jail? Um, uh, quite a few of them that, uh, that I was staying with, um, they haven't even been um, sentenced yet. Mm. Um, they were there um, on a warrant or, um, or um, whatever else they were there for. Um, and the ones that uh, I did speak with or, or spoke to me, it was just a way of life for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they just 
always been in and out of uh, systems all their life, um, ever since they um, turned a teenager, 12, 13. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just a way of life for them. And uh, they had no one to say, you know, you got this potential, you got mm -hmm. that potential. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate to see um, a lot of these young guys uh, go through the system and it's just how it is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate that they don't have that um, chance to reach out and, and uh, get the support they need. Um, unfortunately, with the jail system, um, they don't uh, provide the support that they really need. Um, they might have a counselor or someone to talk to, but no one to actually sit down and then make a plan make for a, plan. Yep. Um, a year, six months, or whenever they do get out. Um, and a lot of these young men or, or women have a lot of potential, a lot of talents in so many areas. And it's unfortunate that they... Um, they don't have the opportunity to uh, to do that. Mm. I'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning on WERU. We're talking about restorative justice and reentry, new ways to respond to crime. And in the studio with us, you've just heard from Henry Dyer, who is a participant in a mentoring program, a community reentering program. Peter McLaughlin is with us as well. He's a, a participant. And Margaret Michalacek is is uh, part of the restorative justice project of mid of the Mid Coast, um, uh, kind of the one of the organizers of of that effort. So glad you can be with us. Um, Margaret, why don't you um, introduce Mark Westrom. Mark is the correctional administrator down at Two Bridges Regional Jail in Wiscasset. And what's his role been? How have you connected with, with the folks in Wiscasset? Um, Mark is um, the administrator at, at Two Bridges Regional Jail. And um, when Waldo County changed its mission to become the main coastal re regional reentry center, um, all of Waldo called Waldo County residents are now being housed down at Two Bridges. And so, and we are continuing to do the reentry from the county jail back to Waldo County. So we're now working with Mark and his staff on setting up, re getting referrals and screening of individuals coming back to Waldo County. Um, in addition to that, Mark is also associated with the reentry center and helping us to figure out in the community how to build a community base in which to find mentors to build the program and also exploring the possibility that Two Bridges could also set up a county-based program to do entry for county residents. Great. Mark, welcome to uh, Talk of the Towns this morning. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about uh, Two Bridges Regional Jail and, and what your role is there before we talk about the community reentry work. Sure. Before I do that, though, let me give you a little bit of history about yes. how we got uh, to where we are at Two Bridges Regional Jail. Uh, Sagadahawk County was the only county in the state of Maine uh, that never had its own uh, jail facility. For many, many, many years, uh, we shipped our inmates to wherever we could find available bed space. Um, I saw a trend in the early 1980s of uh, 12 to 18 inmates being incarcerated in Sagadahawk County throughout the 90s and the early 2000s uh, that rose to the 50s and the 60s. Hmm. And part of the issue that we were seeing was a lot of our inmates were being shipped to jails far away. They were losing contact with their families. They weren't getting the programming that they needed in those particular facilities simply because it was a moneymaker. It was a moneymaker for the other jails. And our inmates would, uh, you know, not be entitled to work release programs or they weren't being trustees or, you know, the program uh, piece of the facility that they were in. Uh, oftentimes our inmates were last in line to receive any type of service. And so what I started to see in the trend was inmates coming back into our community very hostile, upset, um, and rightfully so. And uh, I was sh in law enforcement for 27 years before making the switch to corrections. And, you know, there was a, an old thought back in those days that, you know, you got to lock them up and throw away the key. And, and again, when we did that and that, that type of thinking, 
uh, creates very angry inmates who are our neighbors who come back to our community. And uh, uh, we see, you know, families lined up at town office getting welfare. We saw kids out committing crimes. And it was just a horrible, horrible uh, thing to do to inmates. So not having a jail and having campaigned as a sheriff on being reelected four times, I never wanted a jail until I realized the impact. So here at Two Bridges, um, we went to our citizens. Um, Sagatahawk County, again, had no jail. Lincoln County built a new one in 1983 uh, to hold 12 inmates. And the day they were open, they were overcrowded. And they were in a similar situation. So we decided, uh, working together, the two sheriffs at the time, myself and uh, Sheriff uh, Todd Brackett, uh, the county commissioners from each county, uh, to take a referendum to our citizens, and it passed. And uh, so we built a very state-of-the-art facility here in Wiscasset that services uh, Lincoln and Sagatahart primarily, but we also have all of Waldo's inmates. And here, what we, our philosophy is based on heavy program. And when I talk about heavy program, I mean... Um, we do uh, a host of things from uh, GED to uh, uh, different educational programs. We do spiritual uh, programs. We are trying to teach inmates um, a, you know, a skill set. Uh, we're the only jail in the state that has a wood shop, for example, where we have a very active industries program. Uh, we teach uh, small things like the female inmates how to uh, crochet, and they make a product, and they donate those products, for example, to the Coastal Cancer Center in Bath, um, you know, for people that are disadvantaged, or we at Christmas gave out over 500 wooden toys um, to the Santa Claus Fund that services Sagatahawk and Lincoln County. So we try to do things with our inmates to make them feel good, to make them feel valued. Um, uh, our facility is um, um, the average daily population of about 153 people, and uh, I would dare say that on any given day, uh, half of our inmates are busy and active doing something within the facility um, to help themselves or to help their families make a few dollars um, programming them. And uh, and then we that's where Margaret fits in is uh, uh, the piece that I feel that we we are lacking in is that reentry piece. So that's a little bit about Two Bridges and our history and how we came to be. Mm. So you saw um, some kind of uh, uh, housing people in the local community allowed them to make, continues to have some connections, but you're seeing the need for an even greater kind of connecting piece, reentry back into the community. I do, I do. And we, uh, both Lincoln and Sagadot County, for years and years have had a very active uh, relationship with the Volunteers of America, and they have been fantastic uh, to work with. But, but really what they do is they supervise um, people that are out on bail, or they uh, supervise the people that are in community confinement, um, situations, and that's good. Um, it's very important that they do that. It does keep people from having to be here in the facility, but the missing piece is following that inmate uh, during those early days of release and, and then months afterwards. And for me, it's personal. Um, I, I have a, a neighbor, for example. She's 19 years old. She's been to my jail twice, and when I drive home at night and back in the driveway, there she sits out on the sidewalk, and she's missing that community connection. Um, she needs, instead of sitting there smoking the cigarette and you know I, I'll talk to her for you know quite a bit um, of time but you know people need that component they need somebody to care about them and and to work them through their their own life skills and their own life issues so they don't come back here 
Mm. So, Margaret or or um, Mark, how are you beginning to work together to envision this reentry program with two bridges? Margaret, you want to start, and then Mark, Mark can follow up. How do you envision this happening? Um, well, the first step that we're doing is we're looking at hiring a, a part-time staff person down to serve Lincoln and Sagahawk County and work with Mark in the jail. Um, first, focusing on those that are coming out of the reentry center here in Waldo County and coming back to Lincoln and Sagahawk, and um, kind of envisioning being um, increasing that position to then also look at the jail reentry piece. So, uh, really looking at how, getting the community engaged and educating the community about what restorative justice is and reentry is, so that they can. Uh, support individuals that are coming back. Mm. Mark, you said that the people in, in your county uh, supported the referendum um, to, to build the facility. Do you think they'll be equally receptive to the idea of, of uh, some kind of mentoring and reentry program? I do. I, I really do in Sagadahawk County especially, and I think Lincoln County will uh, will come along. Um, I, you know, it's it's happening very actively in in uh, Waldo County and in Knox County, and I think it's just a natural fit. We're all in the same prosecutorial district we all have a lot of commonalities. We're rural. We have very similar, um, you know, job um, features out in the community. So I'm very excited about it. In fact, uh, since Margaret and uh, some of her staff came down and met with us a couple of weeks ago, uh, we've had a great deal of interest, not only from some staff members, but uh, people out in the community that are starting to hear about this, that are listening uh, listening to us, so I'm very excited. Great, and maybe the last question, you know, for those um, who still have that uh, lock them up and throw away the key philosophy, you've come quite a distance in your thinking. What would you say to some of those uh, folks now? I would say to some of those folks that in 2009, for the first time in the history of our nation, one out of every 100 uh, people are incarcerated in a prison, a federal institution, or a county jail. Um, that's maddening to me uh, when I think about it. When I think about uh, community connections and crime prevention programs and community partnerships, those are all wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I've embraced them for years, but the piece that we continue to miss is the cost of incarceration. It's, it's, it's killing us as taxpayers uh, to continue to pay for new institutions, new facilities, um, the costs that are associated with them when there are so many other things that we could be spending our money on. And for me, it's uh, again, it's personal, and I, uh, I've taken the cop hat off, and I've kind of gone to the other side on the corrections on the corrections side, and really understand the need uh, to pe- put people back into the community with a changed thought process and a change in behavior. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. Thank you. That's Mark Westrom, the Correctional Administrator at Two Bridges Regional Jail in Wiscasset. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about restorative justice and reentry, new ways to respond to crime. Comments about what Mark was saying? Any any thoughts from you guys? I, uh, I, I think that I think that's I think that's wonderful that the the, the jails are. Or, or at least this jail is looking that way. Um, I, I had an incident myself when I went in um, where I'd, uh, I'd get on a Suboxone program, um, which is just a fantastic program. And uh, Wallow County was fine, but, you know, uh, they're overcrowding, uh, shipped me out to a different jail. Um, and when I got there, they said, oh, no, well, I don't give you that. And so, they, you know, they proceeded to take it away from me. Mm. Um, I was fortunate enough to... Um, to uh, get a hold of the sheriff back in, in, in Wallow County, and they brought me back mm. um, and so that I could stay on my uh, program, you know, that I'd, that I'd worked to get into and, 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 you know, the counseling that I'd done and could, so I could stay with the program. 
And uh, you know, I think it's I think it's very great that the the jails are actually seeing the inmates as people that are going back into society and. And how about the, the cost question that, uh, that Mark Westrom talked about? We haven't really talked about that, but it must cost a lot of, lot of money to keep you guys in jail. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it costs $119.49 a day to keep somebody in a county jail. Um, and to send somebody into prison, it's cost somewhere between thirty-three and, and $40,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And if we think about that, you know, what kind of education could we, and service, cause we, could we be providing for that individual in the community? Yeah, so $2.3 million times $119 a day. That's a lot. That's mm-hmm. a lot. We have um, um, somebody who's been a mentor in your programs. Judy Mullins is with us by phone. Um, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Judy. Thanks, Ron. Tell us a little bit about um, yourself and, and how you got interested in, in uh, restorative justice and, and becoming a mentor. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is um, just how, how proud I am, how full my heart is, having listened to the program. Henry, Peter, the things that you talked about um, and what a mentor um, meant to you, um, I'm really, really grateful. Um, that I can be a mentor to somebody. And um, I knew about the program when I lived in Massachusetts um, and actually went to an introductory meeting. There were some folks trying to get um, restorative justice going. Um, it didn't take off, but I got involved just very briefly with something called Alternatives to Violence um, with a group of um, Quakers We'd go into um, a prison for a weekend, um, not stay overnight, but be there parts of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was the first time um, that I'd had any extended contact with someone who was incarcerated. And I felt like um, I learned what the system could do and couldn't do for people, and I got to hear um, over three days the the stories of some of these men and what it was they um, yearned for, what it was they were missing, um, what their life was about. So um, that that was an important introduction for me. So when I saw an ad um, in the local newspaper that there was a meeting for anybody who would... Uh, like to think about being a mentor for restorative justice, I went. Great. And what was that training like? You decided to do it. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about the training and the support that you got to become a mentor. Um, I was thinking about this. We have, we have monthly mentor meetings, and we had one on Wednesday night. And um, I had a chance to talk about the person that I've been working with. And it was just so clear to me that um, when you go through the training, before you're introduced um, to the person that you're going to mentor, it's it's hard to know what piece of the training is really going to have an impact on the kind of relationship you want to build. It's a um, little bit like the first date, right? You got it. You got it. <laughs> you don't know ex- what to expect. You don't. You don't. And so, you know, now having the person I'm mentoring um, – has been out for about five months, so really have a chance um, to know him both on the inside um, when he was in jail and, and on the outside. I, I now am much clearer about the 
pieces of the training that um, are most important to me. And the two that I go back to most is um, we spent an evening on learning about um, what was called the cycle of change, but how it is any one of us goes through various stages in order to change something about our behavior, something about our attitude, and the various kinds of support that you need at each of those stages, the kinds of questions you might ask someone depending on what state of change they were in. I have found that really, really helpful. Um, The other piece um, that was pretty important to me in the training was um, a series of videos um, about the culture of folks who live in poverty and how learning styles can vary. Um, The young man that that I mentor um, came out of considerable poverty, and his life is still in lots of ways defined by that. very little education, very little money, um, not a lot of community support, um, not an opportunity to learn a lot of skills. So to watch that video and hear a woman who herself grew up in poverty begin to talk about in concrete ways, here's how that experience shapes you. Here's the way you talk about things. Here's the way you think about things. Um, That piece was invaluable. I've I've been a community organizer for a number of years and worked in the Bronx and worked in Springfield, Mass., and so had a lot of contact with people, you know, who didn't kind of have their fair share of what most of us get. And um, But it's different when you're developing a long-term relationship with somebody whose life is defined by very different issues and needs than yours. Um, So the fact that we continue meeting is enormously valuable to me. It gives me a chance to talk about my relationship, gives me a chance to talk about what issues come up for me, um, what kind of feelings do I have, um, what's frustrating, um, just to be able to say those things out loud with other people who are in similar relationships and with the staff. Um, That's really an ongoing piece that matters a lot. Mm. And um, a, a final question, um, you're in it for the long run, it sounds like, and what are you getting out of this process that, that feeds you and that uh, keeps you um, engaged in this way? Um, I guess I have to say the first thing is I really like the guy I'm working with. <laughs> I just really like him. Uh-huh. Um, and that may not happen all the time, but it's a big plus for me. Um, I think the other piece, Ron, is... Um, I'm really drawn to situations where transformation is possible. And um, one of the places where I feel most alive is when somehow the system and the individual um, and change in both um, is sort of on the table. And that's that's what I love about restorative justice. We're talking about community change, we're talking about transformation in the life of an individual, we're talking about change in the system, um, 
And we're talking about people who have very different life experiences and values coming together and learning how to work on something together. So, you know, it's it's restorative justice that keeps me coming back, just what it is and how it does its work. And it's also the fellow that I'm hanging out with. I just I just like him. That's great. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, uh, Judy Mullins is a community mentor within the Restorative Justice uh, Project of uh, the Midcoast. Thanks for being with us, Judy. Thank you, Ron. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns as we talk about restorative justice and reentry and new ways to respond to crime. Um, Margaret, any any thoughts uh, or maybe kind of frame a little bit about um, the, the process of recruiting mentors and the support that you give them as part of the program? Judy's mentioned both the training and the ongoing kind of uh, meetings that allow people to support one another. Mm-hmm. Um, our recruitment started by reaching out to churches, and uh, the UU Church in Belfast was one of our, our primary sponsors when we started the program. And so a lot of our, our mentors and volunteers came from, from that church. Um, since that time, um, just putting out uh, news releases, uh, talking about training coming up, it's really word of mouth. People mm-hmm. talking about the project, talking about their experience in the project, um, and, and people become interested because they... I think they can identify with a way that real change is happening. And having people recognize the fact that, you know, as a community, um, coming forward and contributing to that change is really important. And currently we have about 60 volunteers who are mentors with the project um, in Waldo and Knox County. We have about 90 volunteers that work with the program. Um, And they are the program. They Mm. are what makes the program work. And uh, we do 10 hours of initial training with them. And as Judy mentioned, the follow-up monthly meetings with them. But in between, um, any time a mentor meets with their participant, they're, they're writing reports back to us to talk about progress, to talk about challenges. And, um, and we're able to respond to those reports and, and give ideas, share ideas. Um, sometimes if an individual is having difficulties, we'll call a, a circle. And we'll all come together and talk about that, come up with some new expectations and new agreements for that individual. Um, so I think we have a pretty supportive environment, both for the mentors, mentor-to-mentor, um, staff-to-mentors, and um, some. we have some really great volunteers that come in the program. You know, it's an area people love to come to that retire to it. Mm. So we have some, a lot of uh, really great folks. Well, um, we've uh, looked at a number of different pieces of this whole community that we've been talking about. We've uh, uh, talked with Mark, who had uh, both law enforcement and now corrections experience. Um, We've talked to to, um, two folks here in the studio who have been in jail um, or prison. And um, we've talked to the mentor. Uh, now we're going to talk with someone who's part of the court system, um, who another piece of this this uh, puzzle. And we're glad to um, uh, welcome Miriam Johnson, who is assistant district attorney for juvenile matters in in four counties: Sagad Hawk, Lincoln, Knox, and Waldo counties. Welcome to you, Miriam. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about um, the way that you got started in thinking about um, different ways to um, think about justice. Um, well, I got involved, I think, with the working with the Restorative Justice Project um, through their community resolution teams that work with juveniles. Um, when we first, when I first started a couple of years ago working with the district attorney's office, uh, I was approached by Margaret and her group, and um, I have to say I was a little bit skeptical um, that sort of sitting down in a circle would make a big difference with juveniles who were already uh, who were offending, um, and I have been extremely impressed. 
Um, the community resolution team is typically used as um, a diversion to court. Um, we occasionally, in um, fairly serious offenses, use it in addition to a juvenile coming to court. And uh, Yes, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, it, it has made a huge difference. Um, our office um, is very much concerned with how, it, in addition to being concerned with how the juvenile um, proceeds and hopefully does not enter the adult system, um, we're also very concerned with the victim um, and how they their experiences with the juvenile justice system. And um, the victim is given a much more of an opportunity to be heard, um, both by the court system and by the defendant when they participate in the community resolution team. Can you give us some examples that have struck you? As you don't have to list sure. names or anything, but just tell us about what happened as a result of that circle. Sure. Um, one of the most dramatic ones that I participated in um, was an um, incident that happened um, probably about a year ago. Um, a couple of juvenile offenders um, committed the um, crimes of criminal mischief, burglary. They went into a church um, and vandalized it, um, wrote some really horrific things on the walls, um, did a lot of damage within the church. They knocked over a number of gravestones, um, just really caused a lot of damage in a very short period of time. Um, and the members of the church, um, some members of the community were willing to sit down, do a community resolution team. Um, there was a circle. Um, the juvenile was there, um, the victims, um, the pastor, a number of members um, from the church, other people from the community, mentor who was assigned to work with that juvenile, um, and then facilitators um, from the uh, Restorative Justice Project. Um, and it really gave the victims an opportunity to have a conversation uh, with that juvenile. I think one of the things that they really were wondering was, you know, why would someone do this? What were they thinking? How did this come about? And it was really, I think, unfathomable to them um, to think about how that could have happened, and I think they had much more of an understanding as to really what these kids were thinking um, when it happened, you know, and it may have involved some peer pressure, that sort of thing, that when you say it in the abstract, um, sort of think, well, that's no reason to do that. But I think they had a much greater understanding to where the juveniles were coming from. And I think when they were done, the juveniles had a much better understanding um, about the impact of what their actions were. Mm. And that normally doesn't happen in the, in the court system, that kind of well, circle or that closure. You really don't get those conversations. There's, there's not. Um, there's an opportunity, and it is written into our statute, that we need to notify victims, and victims are given an opportunity to come to court and read a victim impact statement. Um, but that's just it. It's a statement. There's not that dialogue. There's not a conversation. Um, and there really isn't um, that vehicle within the court system to have that conversation. And do you see this kind of process helping to prevent juvenile offenders be from becoming adult offenders? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Um, one of the other things that happens at the team is... Um, they work out a contract that's agreed upon by everyone in that group. Um, in the case that I just talked about involving the church, um, they worked out a contract that involved the juvenile, I think, um, doing repairs in the cemetery, putting out flags for Veterans Day, and coming. I think she was at the church every Sunday for about a year um, doing child care um, and volunteering, working at that um, organization. So, so it really was a long-term um, relationship that was built. Right. 
Right. And anything that you'd want to add um, before we let you go in terms of, of uh, the value of this, this type of approach? Um, well, I think it is a huge um, deterrent. I think that when uh, these kids know what sort of an impact their actions have, um, I think it really does deter them from entering the, entering the adult system. And I think likewise it um, really gives the uh, victims a much greater understanding as to what was really going on. And, and Margaret said at the very beginning of the uh, of the show that this is about bringing this back to the community. So what you've described is kind of a, a sense that this is held within the community in some way. There's a there's a circle a- around um, uh, the issue, and the and the people are part of that circle. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks for being with us, Miriam. Uh, Miriam is assistant district attorney for juvenile matters in Sagadahoc, Lincoln, Knox, and Waldo counties. Thanks Thank again you for, for having you. me. Thank you. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns, and now it's your turn. If you'd like to give us a, a call with your questions, your comments, your experience, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500 if you'd like to participate in this morning's Talk of the Towns about restorative justice. Margaret, we've, we've drawn the circle. What else do we want to say this morning? And then we'll ask um, both uh, Peter and Henry for comments as well. Um, I just would like to comment. You know, people think um, I'm always surprised and impressed by the fact that, you know, people see corrections and they see um, the judicial system of being these really staunch and rigid um, systems. And it, it's really great to know that in the Midcoast area, from Washington down to Lincoln, Sagahawk County, that people are really looking for change within those systems and that, that they see that the current system isn't working. And um, it's always very um, um, enlightening to me to c- come in and talk to a correction and have the heads nodding and people saying, yeah, we do need to do something different and we are interested because sometimes people think restorative justice is this real liberal thing way out there. But really, what our, th- our thoughts and what, what our vision is is really um, bringing the two systems together to work together and figure out how do we do this as a community. Mm. We have a phone call. Go ahead. Um, if you give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then your question or comment, please. I can't give you my first name due to the fact that I'm in a brouhaha in Waldo County in regards okay. to <laughs> I live in Midcoast, Maine. First of all, I'd like to congratulate and thank the members of this panel in regards to what they're doing. I would also like to import, imp- give my input in regards to the fact the first thing you have to do is once a person is convicted of a felony, at some point in time, you have to forgive that person and take that off his record because I have been a felon for 39 years. No repeat offenses, no returns to jail, no arrest, nothing. Yet, as we used to say when we were children, it's going to go on your permanent record. Guess what? You have a permanent record. You cannot get a job with, as a, with, with a felony conviction. You can't even get a job in this state with a misdemeanor conviction because there is no possibility of having that misdemeanor overturned. In other words, you cannot take, have it taken off your record. You're stuck with it. Mm. And I suggest to you folks who, again, I applaud your effort. If I could help you, I'd like to talk to you. I'm t- waiting for a phone number to talk to you because I have done this. I've been there. And as the gentleman on this panel who have been in jail realize and will agree with me, it's not the time. It's not the time. It's where you are and what you have to deal with in that environment. Mm. Thank you. And so, thank you are stuck with that felony conviction forever. They may as well stamp you on the forehead with a big F. There's nobody going to touch you for work, for anything. You are out of the game. Mm. I'm sorry, but that's what your system is producing. And the reason I'm in a brouhaha right now in Waldo County, I can't even get a lawyer to represent me. The state won't even present me with anything on a misdemeanor charge. Mm. 
First one I've had in 40 years. Well, thanks for your call, and you bring up an important topic, and we may be able to deal with that in another show. Uh, it's, it's all related, but thank you so much for your call this morning. one 625 9378 if you'd like to participate. Comments on that? Um, Peter, do you want to respond to that and all? Um, well, you know, I think you brought up one point um, in the fact that you, you do go to—people are, are sentenced to prison, and there's a range of people from— uh, driving without a habitual driving without a license to killing people, right. and everybody in that facility is treated the same. There is no the only difference is, is one person may be doing life and another one may do be doing years, but you're exposed to the same kind of treatment. So when you you get out, you when you're in prison, it's a different. You have to live a different type of life. You have to be a different person and live a different type of life. And as far as getting a job, you know, I, I'm fortunately. I uh, was fortunate enough that, you know, my, my problems didn't start until my late 30s, early 40s, and I had a, a good work record, and I had all that, so, and uh, I was able to find people that I'd worked for before that were willing to overlook mm-hmm. anything like that and, and allow me back into the workforce, but I know, I know a slew of people that get out of jail and can't find work, mm-hmm. you know, and people won't, won't hire them, and I, I think that is, is a bad policy for employers to take. Um, as as well as you know, um, and and I agree, especially in the federal system, you <laughs> cannot get anything taken off your record. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you are there. I mean, you make a mistake, and it isn't it is never forgiven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do we want to go next? One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you've got a class, question or a comment um, or your experience to share um, here on Talk of the Towns, Margaret, this notion of of you know, branded for life um, as that, that's a throwback to the old way of thinking about justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's very true. It's very difficult, especially in, in a rural community in the area that we live in. Jobs, you know, just aren't all that available. And to have that be one of the holdbacks, we're missing a lot of really great talent in those individuals that are coming back to the community that are really trying to change their lives and be different by not giving them the opportunity and the chance to um, demonstrate that they have changed behaviors, that they are able to to hold down a job and be um, contributing members of our community. Mm-hmm. Judy Mullins, the, the, the mentor we spoke with, talked about the, a transformative process. And we have to believe that people can transform themselves. We have to believe that. And, and so if we don't have the systems in place that support that transformation, including coming back into our communities, we're, we're, we're cooked. Right, <laughs> We're right. cooked in lots of different ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the two key factors for an individual having a successful reentry and transition back into community are housing and employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, that's another issue is housing for those individuals that can't afford a house because they can't get a job or an apartment. Uh, we have no transitional housing available, and the few facilities that are available are constantly full. Mm. And so th- that's another dilemma that we face, that when we have individuals coming out that don't have a, a family to go back to or... Um, some type of employment to go back to, then we're trying to shuffle them around and find places for them to live in boarding houses or temporary arrangements with old friends or that kind of thing. So the old friends thing can lead into old habits. Right, right. Of course, this, at this rate, the convicts will eventually outnumber the other people and we'll be all set. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a call. Let's take that call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Frank in Lemoyne. <coughs> Excuse me. 
It says something about our society when we have the biggest prison population in the free world. I mean, maybe even in the the unfree world. Well, we have more I'm, than I'm, more than I'm using the free world kind of you know. We have more people in prison than China has in prison. Yeah, they China has as a larger population. That's right. That's right. Yeah, by billions of people. Yeah. I mean, prison. I mean, I bet you eighty-five percent of the people in prison. I mean, I'm just throwing that out as a high, but a clue of the fact. But are nonviolent offenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of you know, a lot of drug stuff that's nonviolent, and especially in federal prison. There's a lot of nonviolent people there. That, but it's a whole industry. I mean, you go to a lot of, you don't see it in Maine, but you go to like Florida, all of North Florida, every little town's got a prison and it creates jobs. So all them, you know, them, them country boys, they want to keep the prison. They keep the prison lobby going, but they got a job watching. Some guy from Miami, you know, who might have been a low, le- a low-level drug dealer without violence. Right. You know, it's not all drugs are. You know, not a drug advocate, but not not all prisoners are in violence. You know. Great. Thanks. Non-vi- non-violent crime shouldn't even go to prison, like taxes. <clears throat> I speak for myself. <laughs> and stuff like that. We'll do a show with you uh, at some point too, Frank. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Great. And, and um, you know, Peter, you just made the, the same point. Not everybody in prison is, is there for the same reason, but you're all treated the same. And, and therefore, when you get ready to come out of prison, you may not have been given any kind of support or skills that allow you to reenter. The federal government is actually any, any drug crime, regardless whether there was violence or not, is rated as a violent crime in the federal system. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, And that is on your record as a violent crime. Mm-hmm. So. It is. We're almost ready uh, to, to, to wrap up. Henry, um, what comments would you have for people who are listening who might say, um, how do I make this happen in, in my community? Uh, or, or what's the value of this kind of program? Well, actually, um, a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to uh, speak with a, a new group of, of mentors mm. uh, that are just entering the program. Um, and uh, I agreed to, to meet with these, uh, uh, these folks. Um, it was the first time I actually stepped in front of a group of people and um, talked about what had happened to me and, and how I got through it and how the program has um, uh, been a success for me. And uh, um, when I uh, when I finished speaking about my uh, uh, about my experiences, um, the last thing I had to say to these group of people is that they had an opportunity to change someone's life. Um, and, uh, if you sit back and think about it in this, in this life of ours, we don't have a lot of opportunities to do that. Um, and a lot of these people that are in incarcerated men, women, um, or even juveniles, um, they, they need that one-on-one, uh, with that, with that person to say, um, you have a chance to, to change your life. What do you want to do with your life? Mm. Um, a lot of these people, they are musicians, they're cooks, they're, they're teachers, uh, which also goes right back to, to jobs. Um, as myself, I, I, um, had that experience. I was hired, uh, with an agency, um, an excellent job. Um, and about an hour after I was hired, I got a phone call saying, oh, well, you know, you were convicted of such and such. So we don't want you, we don't want to hire you. And then in some cases they, they wouldn't even talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but this group of people, um, I, I gave them, um, uh, all the credit in the world for, for doing what they're doing. And, um, I guess uh, what I can say to everyone that's listening, um, if you want to make a change, uh, this program is an excellent program, um, and uh, you have an excellent opportunity to to make an impact on on an individual's life. Thanks, Henry. Uh, Peter, any any last last comments for the radio show? No, I believe what Henry said is is, is true. It's a, you know it's an opportunity um, for anybody that um, 
needs to get back into society and, and, and you know, there's somebody there that they care. Mm, great. Great. And Margaret, last word to you, and, and please list some contact information for Mid-Coast Restorative Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our contact information is uh, we're located in Belfast, and our telephone number is 338-2742, and you can give us a call. We'll be doing trainings up and down the, the Mid-Coast um, beginning in, in May through next fall. So if you're interested in becoming a mentor or would just like to have a conversation about the work we're doing, we'd be more than happy to talk with you and share more information ab- about the work and how we're um, expanding into the Mid-Coast area. Great. And your hopes for the future? Um, that we will be community and we will be working together and that we will uh, continue to assist individuals who are really wanting to change and really wanting to be in community um, to make those changes and that transformation that we talk about. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for bringing the whole community to this radio program. Thank you, Ron. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Margaret Michalicek of the Restorative Justice Project of the Mid-Coast, Mark Westrom, of the correction, he's the correctional administrator down at Two Bridges Regional Jail, Judy Mullins is a community mentor, and Miriam Johnson with us, with us also by phone, Assistant uh, District Attorney in Sagadhawk, Lincoln, Knox, and Waldo Counties. And thanks to, again to Peter McLaughlin and Henry Dyer, who are participants in the community reentry program. Thanks to our um, underwriters. Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Table, a farmhouse bistro, grand reopening Friday, April 2nd, located at 66 Main Street in Blue Hill. More information at farmkitchentable.com. Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! headlines at 8 o'clock on Morning Main and in its entirety, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., only on Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515.